This is the Green Blues Show, the latest news, a bit of blues. Today, the toxic legacy of American chemical warfare in Vietnam, a report card from Canadian Auditors General on how Canada is performing on the climate change file, it's not very good, and the information economy isn't anywhere near as clean as you'd think, but web servers are reducing their carbon footprints. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. You are what you eat, the old saying goes. You are also what you lay down in or on at night. This is the conclusion of a recent research study on chimpanzee beds in a Tanzanian forest. Chimp beds, it turns out, are cleaner than human ones. Just 3% of the bacterial and insect species found in chimp beds came from their skin, mouths, or feces. In contrast, almost a third of the bacteria and crawling bugs humans cozy up to between the sheets at night are smeared, drooled, or sloughed off their bodies. These findings may seem surprising, not to mention disgusting, but they jive with how and where chimps and humans hit the pit. Chimps sleep in nests made of branches and soft leaves, built each day and abandoned at sunrise. So while chimp fur is home to many ectoparasites, micro and macroscopic, they don't tend to accumulate in chimp bedding. Instead, the bugs in abandoned chimp beds that some human researchers have apparently slept in, reflect nest-building material and local climate. On the other hand, we humans live in permanent digs and are surrounded by bugs we shed and feed with our wastes. A third of our lives, of course, are spent in bed. Inevitably, many of the hundred trillion microbes living on us and in us also live on our sheets, pillowcases, and blankets. Typically, this isn't a problem, although dust mite allergies are common. Common sense tells us to keep our bedding clean and not to share our beds with too many other people. It also makes sense to make peace with the microbes we share our space with day and night. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. After a long, hard day facing life, it's sure nice to get away and crawl into your bed, kind of like an escape. Unfortunately, sometimes, some of life's worst problems is found right there. Bed bugs is me! Jackass will bite you and stand and grin. 
bed bugs as big as a jackass will bite you and stand in grin. Run off in a corner, come back and bite you again. When I lay down at night, I wonder how can a poor boy sleep. When I lay down at night, wonder how can a poor boy sleep? Bed bugs under my pillow, bed bugs eating my feet. Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Bed Bug Blues. Born Elliot Charles Adnapaz, Ramblin' Jack's Brooklyn Jewish parents wanted him to become a surgeon. At the age of 15, he ran off and joined the rodeo instead. Years later, he rode the rods with Woody Guthrie, eventually sounding more like Guthrie than Guthrie did, as America's folk laureate once quipped. In the early 60s, Ramblin' Jack rambled off to the UK, making a name for himself and recording tunes like this one. Ramblin' Jack Elliott turns 87 this summer. We wish him well. I heard a noise in the corner I went and seed I heard a noise in the corner I went and seed It was a bed bug mother praying Lord give me some more to I recall years ago watching American news anchor Walter Cronkite on black and white TV reporting on the Vietnam War. Flickering on the screen, a crop duster sailed over a forested landscape, clouds of herbicide billowing in its wake. Weren't there people living beneath that forest canopy, I asked? Indeed, there were. Between 1961 and 1970, U.S. forces sprayed 20 million gallons of herbicide across Vietnam, over 10,000 square miles of the country. Why? To deny forest cover and food to enemy troops, also to clear sight lines for U.S. forces. The most common defoliant, Agent Orange, was contaminated with a highly toxic chemical called dioxin. As many as 4 million Vietnamese and 2.8 million American personnel were exposed. A half century later, the legacy of American chemical warfare lives on. No one knows more about that legacy than a man named Charles Bailey. As head of the Ford Foundation's office in Hanoi from 1997 to 2007, Bailey helped the Vietnamese government remediate dioxin contamination. Bailey and his longtime colleague, Vietnamese toxicologist Lee Kay Son are the authors of a new book, From Enemies to Partners, Vietnam, the U.S., and Agent Orange. I reached Charles Bailey at his home on Lummi Island, British Columbia. Agent Orange was one of, uh, you know, half a dozen different defoliants that were uh, spread over the Vietnamese landscape between 19, early 60s and 1970. And there was Agent Orange, Agent White, Agent Yellow, Agent Blue. What, what were these defoliants and where did dioxins fit into their formulation? Well, they were formulated, remember, as military herbicides. That is, with the intent to 
defoliate and and uh, clear sight lines through dense jungle. Uh, it was also intended to uh, kill uh, food crops in areas that were um, someone decided were, were were enemy areas. They let contracts uh, to every chemical company then existing in the U.S. to produce this stuff by the you know hundreds of thousands of bar- barrels. And so the manufacturers got sloppy. Unless you're very careful in manufacturing these herbicides, you get dioxin as an unintended byproduct. And what is, di- what is dioxin? Dioxin is the most toxic substance known to mankind. It is uh, toxic to human beings at very, very small levels. Its toxicity is measured in parts per trillion. How, how many Vietnamese were exposed, civilians as well as troops, to these various uh, uh, defoliants? You know, that's really a, an impossible number to know because, you know, do you know where you were standing on a particular time, a particular day, in a particular time of day in 1965? And, and maybe you heard a plane overhead, uh, and maybe that plane was spraying, but maybe it wasn't. The Vietnam Red Cross estimates that between 2.8 and 4.5 million Vietnamese were exposed during the 10 years of the spring. So uh, how much of this persists? Let's fast forward a bit to today. How much dioxin lingers in Vietnamese soils? And I know there's a distinction between, generally speaking, areas that were defoliated and, and hot spots. So distinguish between these two for me, Charles? Okay, well, the big breakthrough uh, was one of the first grants that I made on this whole subject of Agent Orange, uh, which uh, back in 2002, and it was a breakthrough because, as I mentioned, there was so much fog of war that everyone, you know, was concerned. They didn't know what had become of the dioxin. This is, you know... uh, 19, uh, 2002. So this is, you know, 30 years later. Nobody really knew what had become of the dioxin. Uh, there was some indication that it breaks down in sunlight, but not very much was known about its persistence, except that if it sank into the soil and attached to soil particles, then it could persist for much longer periods of time. So uh, the first, uh, so I funded a, an investigation by the uh, Vietnamese Ministry of Health, together with a Canadian company, Hatfield uh, Environmental Consultants in West Vancouver, BC. Hatfields of West Vancouver and the Ministry of Health in Vietnam had done a study of the Aloe Valley I mentioned a moment ago, between 1994 and about 2000 with the objective of answering this question you posed. What's the fate of the dioxin that was sprayed so intensively? They checked all the soil in this 30-mile by 10-mile wide valley. All of the testing was done in Sydney, British Columbia, uh, which has a world-class laboratory capable of detecting these very minute amounts. And the results came back that in the general landscape, while there was dioxin, it was at or below levels that would trigger a cleanup under Canadian environmental uh, standards. However, 
at a former U.S. Army Rangers base in the southern part of the valley uh, was extremely toxic. Why? Because they had the, the Army Rangers had sprayed this stuff around the perimeter lots of times to keep open lines of fire, and they had just saturated it, and then when they left, they I guess they left some behind. So, uh, so the first thing that happened was the Canadian team of Hatfields, uh, working with the government, got the village that had been built near that hotspot relocated, and a secure fence built around it. And uh, and then they turned in their report and in, in Hanoi, and um, and. It wasn't clear what more was going to be done with it, except that I heard about it and met with the Canadians and ultimately proposed to the Ministry of Health that, and the, uh, that they employ the Canadians to take this hotspot hypothesis and apply it at all former U.S. military bases throughout former South Vietnam. And we discovered that there were something on the order of 2,735 former U.S. Uh, uh, military bases of various kinds and sizes and durations, and the, uh, the, the team of Canadians and public health professionals in, in Vietnam looked at all of them. What emerged was there were big, three big uh, air bases that needed cleaning up. Uh, da Nang, a city, port city in central Vietnam, a smaller place called Phu Cot, further south along the coast, and uh, the biggest of all is Bien Hoa, the largest airbase in the south, about 18 miles north of Ho Chi Minh City. Trying to fast forward this, the Da Nang airbase hotspot has been largely remediated, if I understand correctly. Um, Phuket, I'm not sure what the situation there is, but the big challenge now is cleaning up the hotspot in Bien Hoa. And, and in the course of talking about this, if you can address this idea that the local populations in these three sites were actually consuming uh, fish and shellfish and ducks and things that were um, living in uh, ponds and bodies of water in, the, in these former air bases and were bioaccumulating the toxins and, and toxins are ending up in breast milk and blood and talk about that. Sure. Well, first of all, David, it's important to know that uh, dioxin is not soluble in water. It does not dissolve in water. And so uh, the way it travels is by attaching uh, these very tiny molecules attaching to uh, uh, fine uh, uh, clay sediments in, in soils. Over time, the areas that were contaminated, sort of the soil washed away and collected in uh, lower-lying uh, uh, streams and ponds, and people who were using those to produce fish or ducks uh, or even aquatic plants uh, could have been affected either through direct contact but more likely through uh, the bioaccumulation up the food chain. So, for example, we started with Da Nang uh, in 2007. I got the ball rolling with the Ford Foundation grant of one and a quarter million dollars to basically do more detailed three-dimensional surveys of the dioxin status of the Da Nang airport and surrounding areas in the city uh, as and tracing it up the food chain 
through uh, ducks and fish to people. When they took blood samples of people who were employed on the base, for example, to clean weeds out of drainage ditches, or a family that was earning a living by raising fish in this very toxic pond, they found high blood dioxin levels. And while that's not good, these people who had it uh, were all healthy. This is one of the strange things about dioxin. It's really unknown just how, how it affects people's health, but sooner or later they will probably live shorter lives as a result of having it in their system. So in the case of, of uh, Da Nang, the solution, the immediate solution that, that, that the Ford Foundation, one and a quarter million dollars went to, was to uh, lock down the dioxin. How did we do that? Uh, well, we built a perimeter wall around the airport to keep people out. Uh, we put a six-inch concrete slab over the area that was most contaminated, and we did a series of water runoff treatment structures for the other areas where these uh, drums of herbicide had been, had been stored. So by January 2008, uh, we had removed in its entirety the public health threat uh, to the people of the city of Da Nang. Tell me about the situation in Bien Hoa now. Uh, Bien Hoa, the biggest of them all, about 85% of the total volume of contaminated soil is at Bien Hoa. This is about close to 500,000 cubic meters, about 750,000 tons of uh, contaminated soil. So this is a much bigger issue. It's also more complicated because the contaminated soil is spread out over a larger area because the Bien Hoi Air Base is on higher ground, so the runoff carried the contaminated soil further. So uh, we now know through preliminary studies uh, exactly where the contaminated soil is, the level of contamination, and they have done some preliminary sort of lockdown measures to separate people from uh, from the um, contaminated soil. Charles, the, tox the toxicity of the, the human health impacts of dioxins ha have been fairly well studied. We, we associate a variety of cancers, congenital malformations, uh, teratogenic effects, effects on human immune system. W what has been the long-term health impact of dioxin on, on the Vietnamese population? And I, I realize, of course, this is hotly debated, um, it's really difficult to know, but can you kind of quickly run through this for me? Vietnam Red Cross several years ago estimated that between 2.8 and 4.5 million people have been exposed back in the 60s. But of course, it's very hard to sort of trace that in individual lives forward to the present, except that we know from uh, our own veteran population that people who are exposed, our veterans, the U.S. veterans who are exposed, um, uh, tended to die younger than their uh, cohort of uh, basically of old people's diseases, the ones that you that are listed in the Veterans Administration um, uh, program for Agent Orange affected U.S. veterans. So you can say that it probably a similar impact has happened in the populations, uh, particularly of soldiers on both sides and civilians who were in sprayed areas. When one goes to Vietnam, there are all these a host of friendship villages where people with really profound disabilities uh, live. 
and it, it is the view of, I think, many Vietnamese that, that many folks, many of these individuals are really profound congenital disabilities and transgenerational effects are, um, uh, have been affected by Agent Orange. And there's an interesting quote in the book uh, regarding, in your book regarding Tai Bin province, uh, exceptionally referring to an exceptionally high number of war veterans, Vietnamese war veterans with children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren with congenital malformations. So this would suggest that there are really um, uh, quite observable transgenerational effects, but uh, which would seem to be compelling given their exposure. But on the other hand, this is highly controversial. Well, I think of it this way, David. Um, there are the people who are directly exposed, that is, who were alive and living and in those areas that were sprayed, whatever they were doing during the 60s. And then they, what I call the indirectly exposed, which are their offspring, their children uh, uh, and the children's children and great-grandchildren uh, and maybe even great-great-grandchildren. Uh, and it's the indirectly exposed, the, the directly exposed are the, are the people who come down later in life with one of these diseases on the U.S. and Vietnamese list, the cancers and diabetes and other things that are listed on page 50 of our book. Um, and so you sort of treat those diseases. And the thing is that a lot of those diseases, Hodgkin's disease, trachea cancer, uh, prostate cancer, have various causes, not just dioxin. So uh, the U.S. position has been, uh, we'll uh, help our veterans uh, even though we don't know for sure what may have caused their cancer uh, just because they were in Vietnam. The Vietnamese take the similar position. We'll help people uh, uh, who have these conditions. But what they say is our real need are the in, is help with the indirectly exposed, the children, the grandchildren. And here it's not cancers and lymphoma and sarcoma and, uh, and these kinds of things. It is, as you say, birth defects. And there is a very great sense among the Vietnamese and others that there must be a link um, between uh, exposure of a parent, grandparent, great-grandparent and a birth defect uh, in a subsequent generation. The, and the argument uh, between, if you will, is does the science support this? And the U.S. government says it does not. The Vietnamese says it does, and uh, like with most science, there are a variety of views, and more science, I suspect, will establish for sure that at the genetic level, uh, that there is a mechanism which messes up the genes um, more or less randomly, because not every descendant is born with birth defects, and that it persists over generations. And is this observed, Is are these transgenerational effects observed amongst U.S children and grandchildren of U.S. veterans? Definitely. They certainly are. And in fact, there's a whole organization led by my friend Heather Bowser in Ohio called uh, Children of Vietnam Veterans Health Alliance, which is trying to draw attention to the circumstances of these children, some of whom, like Heather herself, are now in their 40s. She was born missing one uh, lower right, one lower leg and, and, and fingers on her hand. And she was lucky. Uh, you, she went, goes to Vietnam, and you can find Vietnamese of her age with identical issues. 
Uh, so yeah, it's it's definitely affected people in both both countries. Charles Bailey, I'd like to thank you for joining me on the Green Blues Show. It's my pleasure. It's a beautiful day here in Lummi Island, and I wish you well there in Winnipeg, and I look forward to uh, hearing the results. Charles Bailey is a public policy specialist at the Aspen Institute in Washington, D.C., as head of the Ford Foundation's office in Hanoi from 1997 to 2007. Bailey helped organize and finance dioxin remediation work in Vietnam. Bailey and Vietnamese toxicologist Lee Kay Son are the authors of a brand new book, From Enemies to Partners, Vietnam, the U.S. and Agent Orange, for a link And further details on this story, go to greenplanetmonitor.net. You are listening to The Green Blues, a show. I'm David Kattenberg.
Champion Jack Dupree, Vietnam Blues. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has stated his commitment to take concrete actions to encourage the transition to a competitive, low-carbon economy. Sounds promising, but according to a report released in March, Canada's efforts fall sharply short. Most governments in Canada were not on track to meet their commitments to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, says a report by the Auditor General of Canada and the Legislative Audit Offices of nine Canadian provinces. I spoke with Julie Gelfand, Canada's Federal Commissioner for the Environment and Sustainable Development. The report card is not terribly good. I mean, here, uh, right at the start of this report, Perspectives on Climate Change and Action, more than half the governments did not have overall targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and of those that did, only two were on track to meet their targets. Most governments had not fully assessed climate change risks and had not developed a detailed adaptation plan, so it doesn't sound very good. Um, I would say that on the bright side, (laughs) there is some bright side. You're correct that all those statements that you made were headlines in our report. Um, So most of them don't have overall targets, particularly for the 2020 target. So on the bright side, uh, on the positive side, what we did find was that all governments have agreed that climate change is important and they have committed to uh, taking significant action. We did, however, find that overall, most of the jurisdictions did not have targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And that was both for the year 2020 target and for the 2030 target. And yet, with the pan-Canadian framework, we're all supposed to be heading towards this one overall reduction target. And yet, we found that most of the governments didn't actually have 2030 targets. So that was a bit of a concern. Um, In fact, only three of them had 2030 targets. Which ones? The three who had them, I can tell you the eight that did not. (laughs) Canada did, New Brunswick and Ontario. They had 2030 targets. Eight jurisdictions did not have them. That's Alberta, BC, Manitoba, Newfoundland, Nunavut, PEI, Saskatchewan, and Yukon. And of those that did have targets, none had had specific plans to actually achieve those targets? Um, They had plans, but the plans were very high level very high level. So they lacked details that auditors like to look for, things like roles and responsibilities, timelines. So who's going to do what, by when, and how much is it going to cost? As well, uh, the governments that had these high-level plans were not sure that those plans would actually help meet the targets that that they had set. So as an example, in New Brunswick, they had indicated that they wanted to have 20,000 electrical vehicles on the road by 2030. But there were no details regarding the implementation of this action item, the timeline, or the infrastructure required. And in Manitoba, uh, Manitoba indicated that they had plans to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture and waste, um, and yet there were no details on how that would be actually implemented. Let's back up for a second. Can you tell me um, what are Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions at this moment? And what are we 
what are we supposedly committed to achieving in the way of reductions under under the Paris Accords? So the latest figures for our greenhouse gas emissions would put us slightly over 700 megatons. And our goal for to achieve the Paris target is around 520-odd. So we're, we have to go from about 720 down to 520. This is a significant uh, decrease that has to happen. Um, in our report, we, put, we have actually a chart that shows our greenhouse gas emissions, Canada's greenhouse gas emissions, and all the targets that we had committed to. So the Rio target, the, 22, the 2000 target, the Kyoto target, and the Copenhagen target, which were all in the zone of, say, 580 up to 610 megatons, and we're still up at the 720, and now the Paris target is down near 520. So we've pushed the target out further into the future, and we've made the target even harder to achieve. And where are most of these emissions coming from? Can you give me a, a sense of what the the top sources of Canadian greenhouse gas emissions are? The greatest percentage of our um, uh, greenhouse gases are coming from Alberta and Saskatchewan, and that makes sense because that's where our oil and gas industry is. Um, and so our where, what are the sources of greenhouse gases? Uh, oil and gas uh, are amongst the highest transportation buildings, heavy industry, electricity, and agriculture are some of the biggest uh, sources of greenhouse gases. What are the major threats to Canada and to Canadians posed by uh, elevating surface temperatures here in Canada? What are the, what are the challenges and the threats? Yeah, there's quite a few. Um, the climate change impacts that Canadians need to be most worried about, I would suggest, uh, probably a number one would be flooding. Um, so already we're seeing the frequency of floods increase in Canada, um, and we've had ma you've had major floods in in uh, Manitoba for forever, but we're now getting those those kind of high precipitation events and flooding events in places like Toronto and Ottawa and Calgary. So flooding is is a big issue. Uh, rising sea levels is going to be an issue for people who live along the coasts. So think of uh, Prince Edward Island, uh, Vancouver. Uh, we're going to have an increase in intensity and duration of, um, of strong meteorological weather events and forest fires. So forest fires, um, the summer of 2017, wildfires burned a record 1.2 million hectares of forest in British Columbia, with one of the largest ones covering an area roughly the size of Prince Edward Island. So we're, we are likely to experience almost twice the number of fires um, by 2100, like in 100 years or so. Um, up north, the big um, climate change impact is going to be the thawing permafrost, as well as melting sea ice, which is going to create um, difficulties in getting uh, traditional food sources, as well as increasing shipping in, in the north. Um, we're finally probably going to have more heat waves and um, and deal with more heat-related uh, uh, deaths that happen with uh, with heat waves. Interesting poll that was just released uh, the other day indicating that apparently, um, of course, it always depends on how polls such as this are are phrased, what the questions are, 
but that Canadians are skeptical about carbon taxes. Um, and um, not, in, not entirely favorable towards the idea, according to that poll. Can you tell me what sorts of carbon pricing mechanisms and market-type mechanisms, including cap-and-trade, have been introduced across Canada and what your report suggests uh, uh, the degree of success that these, these instruments have had? Mm. So I would say we ha we did not look at the degree of success of the various instruments. Uh, what we do know is that most uh, Canadians, 85% of Canadians live in a jurisdiction already that have uh, some form of uh, price on carbon, whether that be cap and trade or um, um, carbon t uh, pricing. Uh, we did not look at the efficacy of this, um, of either one of those. Uh, so we know British Columbia, for example, has a reven revenue neutral carbon tax, which was about, um, started at about $10 per ton and uh, was at $30 per ton when, when the audit was done by the Auditor General of British Columbia. They've committed to increasing the carbon tax, uh, carbon price to $50 per ton by 2021. In Alberta, um, they've got an uh, economy-wide price on carbon, which it co consists of two components. There's a carbon levy that's applied to all transportation and heating fuels that emit greenhouse gases when burned, and there's also carbon pricing applied to large industrial facilities. In Ontario and Quebec, they have cap-and-trade systems, um, and under these systems, businesses that emit greenhouse gases are required to buy allowances to cover those emissions. Uh, these allowances can be bought from the government or from other businesses that have extra allowances on hand, and every year, essentially, the total amount of allowances decreases, so the theory is that emissions should decrease as well. So, so those are some of the major initiatives um, that are happening right now. But at this moment, the bottom line is that Canada is not on target to meet its its Paris commitments. Right now, I can say for sure we're not on track to meet the 2020, the Copenhagen commitment. We have a lot of work to do. The pan-Canadian framework has to be completely implemented, and we have to go beyond that in order to reach the Paris Agreement. Does the Auditor General's office have kind of like an expectation that reports like this will have some some impact on public opinion or, or help mobilize um, individual Canadians to act? Or are you really just sort of exclusively focused on, on, on um, addressing the government and its various agencies? We, produ we produce audits on a whole variety of topics that we think parliamentarians are concerned about and that are of high risk to Canadians. So our job is to get to get the facts out to Canadians. Um, we get access to documents in government that really nobody else gets access to. Um, and, and our job is to report to Parliament whether or not the government is doing what Parliament has asked it to do. Um, so we hope that Canadians find our reports readable and that they can use them. In the case of the Commissioner's Office, uh, um, you, uh, any Canadian can um, submit what's called a petition. It's essentially a letter 
questions that they can ask the, any federal minister on any topic or ministers on any topic related to the environment and sustainable development, and they will get a response within 120 days. The government must respond. So that's one way where uh, Canadian citizens can get involved. Um, they can get through uh, to our office. We help help um, uh, petitioners prepare the letters and make sure that the questions are answerable um, by the ministries, uh, by the departments, and then you're, you get an answer, and then we post those answers on our website. So that's another way for us to know what uh, is of concern to Canadians. Julie Gelfond, I'd like to thank you for joining me on the Green Blue Show. Thank you so much. Julie Gelfand is Federal Commissioner for the Environment and Sustainable Development. For a link to the Canadian Auditor's General Report, Perspectives on Climate Change in Action in Canada, go to greenplanetmonitor.net. You are listening to the Green Blues Show here on 95.9 FM, CKUW in Winnipeg, Canada, or somewhere around the world, courtesy of the World Wide Web. I'm David Kattenberg. Baby, you never touched my love again. Baby. Never touch my love again. You must remember, baby, now. You must remember your dad, how being your friend. <laughs> Mississippi, David Honeyboy Edwards. You're going to miss me. Edwards performed and rambled with some of the Mississippi Delta's greatest, including Charlie Patton, Robert Johnson, and Big Joe Williams. He recorded a couple dozen songs for the Library of Congress's Alan Lomax, and in later years sat in with Fleetwood Mac in their late 1960s sessions. David Honeyboy Edwards passed away in 2011. Baby, you gotta miss me when I'm gone. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Miss me when I'm gone. You gotta wish a minute time, baby, Lord God, you had on stayed at home. Yeah. 
Anyone who thinks they're pioneering the carbon-free economy just by going digital, making money in cyberspace, should think again. The average web server, where sites like the Green Blues show reside, consumes a thousand kilowatts of energy each year and pumps 630 kilos of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. To learn more about green computing, I spoke with Andrew Boardman, the founder of a Winnipeg-based certified bee company called Man Overboard. People used to talk about how, you know, we could escape the conundrum of, uh, of achieve permanent growth, which yeah. seems to be the paradigm it is, yeah. uh, in, in a world where resources are limited and people would say, well, now we're in an information economy in a digital world, mm -hmm. so growth can happen now, economic expansion can happen without... Forever. Uh, forever without consumption of natural resources or production yeah. of waste yeah. and it turns out that the digital world actually has an enormous carbon footprint. It has a huge carbon footprint. I think the last statistic I saw was 10% of all uh, globally all uh, electricity is used up by the internet or by internet products and services and that's growing exponentially so we're at 10% by 2020 that might be 15 or even 20% we're nearing the point where we're going to be um, approximating the amount of emissions of the global airline industry uh, the inter using uh, the Internet itself. So the Internet itself is going to be equivalent to the, to the, uh, the global emissions of the um, airline industry. Worldwide. Now, can you explain to me how it is uh, that web servers and all these, these data hubs consume so much energy? But essentially what's happening is that these server farms, these data centers that are all over the world, are being powered by uh, energy that's mostly fossil fuel based. So for instance, Amazon has a bunch of uh, data centers, uh, server farms in Virginia, and they keep growing them. And one of the nice things about Virginia is it has access to lots of coal plants coal and coal uh, facilities so those manu you know those coal plants are powering these data farms that Amazon is using to power their servers um, it's very powerful right coal coal is very inexpensive to produce and it's inexpensive for them to power their their farms to give them some credit um, they are working on powering their servers by renewable energy and there are a few leaders um, uh, industry leaders right now that are 100% committed to 100% renewable, um, renewably powered data centers. But underlying all this is is this idea that to run a server of the size and capacity that mm -hmm. is found within a, a data hub like you know Amazon's yeah. uh, or Google's, uh, it's it consumes lots of energy. It it's a lot, lot of, of energy. a lot of electronics. For sure. And just you know, to further that point, the companies that are doing things and they're creating market signals to other companies are companies like Facebook or, um, and the, the leader, the real market leader is Apple. And they're, I believe right as of today, this past year or two, it's not, they're 100% renewably powered uh, data centers. So every time you use an Apple product, it's being powered by wind or solar or some other geothermal energy, which is really incredible considering how many servers and server farms they, they probably have going on. So with Man Overboard, where, where, do you, where are you situated in this, oh, in this mean, paradigm? Uh, you're, yeah. you, you're a web hosting, you engage in web hosting, but mm -hmm. not, not, that's not a, very, it's not a major component no. of what you do. 
it's a very, very small part of what we do. So what we took on ourselves is to kind of just become, because we're so small, we're a three, four person shop. So that all we thought we could do was to try, try to communicate and try to educate folks about these issues, like the fact that your website, every time you click on a website or open an email, you're using energy, and that energy hopefully is powered by some renewable um, uh, plants or, or renewable energy sources. So we took it ourselves to come up with a number of tools, and one of the things we did was um, we created a site called Serving.Green. Serving.Green. .Green. Yeah, it's a kind of funny URL. But basically what it is, it's a very lightweight site. It's, it's got a rich media approach. It's you know, fairly sophisticated in its approach and style. But it has a, it's very lightweight in approach, and it uses up very little energy, even though it's got a pretty rich footprint. And so what that website does is, to, ostensibly and hopefully, it provides some tools for people to start thinking about these issues that we're talking about. And, and how is it that, how have you designed it in such a way that it, it's got a rich footprint, as you say, but it yeah. doesn't consume as much energy? It's funny, because yeah. when we're talking about websites, yeah. we think we're in the virtual world. We're mm -hmm. not thinking that we're spending energy or that this That's particular right. website we visited is, has got a large carbon footprint. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, 20 years ago, the, the average website was very small, right? We had little pipes, and you had to dial up, and that made that kind of boop, boop, boop sound, right? And so we would dial those things up, and we'd, you know, the very narrow pipes would deliver us these websites, so they had to be very small. Now, with the advent of Netflix and YouTube and all these other things, we have much more bandwidth. And so websites have been keeping pace with that, and the average website is now about 3.5 megabytes per page, which is a lot. It's a, lo it's a lot. Every time a web page opens, that's 3.5 megabytes downloading from a server to a computer or you know, smartphone or a tablet. And so that's a lot of that's a lot of energy, both you know transporting it and storing it and and keeping it. And so one of the things we realized is, well, let's see if we can do create a website that was kind of rich in experience and interesting and hopefully engaging, and see if we can make that website smaller than 3.5 megabytes. And we got it down to 1.5 megabytes, which was an accomplishment because we wanted to show that this is doable. How do you do that we without released, getting too technical? Uh, yeah. We just released a like um, a checklist, and so there are a number of different things you can do. The biggest thing, I mean, the biggest thing, if you really want to create a, a more sustainable site or a site that has, um, you know, has less of a load on and on terms of energy resources, is to use smaller images. We've noticed so many sites and we've visited so many websites where you're waiting forever for these images to download. So you use smaller images or fewer images or you use images that are more optimized. Um, using less video on websites also certainly helps. Um, video is a huge energy hog. Um, it's a wonderful thing. We're, you know, we use it all the time and use it to educate ourselves and learn. And, and then generally just using less code, like using fewer assets and, and less code to create smaller sites with smaller digital footprints. I'm thinking the Green Planet Monitor site with all its audio Mm -hmm. well, you know, listen, read, watch is the, yeah. is the motto. That with all yeah. this auto, all this audio that's there on the it's site, I'm, mm -hmm. I must be an energy hog. You know, it really depends. And, it, and to, to be fair to you, um, the site itself might be very low bandwidth and, and be performing beautifully. It depends on where you're hosting your podcasts, which you know, are relatively rich 
in terms of data. Um, so if you're ho being hosted on Amazon, for instance, as a platform, you're fine. If you're hosting them on... SoundCloud. SoundCloud's terrible. Oh, no. Yeah, they get an F. Oh, I no. I think from Greenpeace. So, so there we go, right? Um, I think SoundCloud got an F from the most recent uh, Greenpeace Click Clean report. Oh, dear. Yeah. Who, so who's better than SoundCloud? I have to look into that for you. I'm not sure. There are a few companies that, you know, that, are, that are paying attention to this, but not a lot. Yeah, that's very oh, funny. I'm, I'm, I'm crushed. <laughs> you know what? There's probably an alternative. But you know what? Maybe, maybe SoundCloud is also, if you look at some of their policies, maybe they're, maybe they're working on it. So when you, um, Andrew Boardman, when you um, take on a job to design a website, mm -hmm. you have clients for whom you design websites? Sure. Can you tell me about the steps you go through in consultation with your clients to create sites that are, have a, a lower carbon footprint? Yeah, I mean, we, what we try to do in general is, you know, we'll, we'll, we will talk to a client at the very beginning about what, you know, what it is that's going to be featured on the site, what types of content. But really, ultimately, it's up to us to kind of shape that experience. And what we'll try to do is use as, little, as few assets as possible, make sure that the images are optimized, make sure that the code is well, is, uh, is uh, standardized, or at least we're using web standards, and just generally try to reduce the number of plugins, the amount of technology that we'll use to build a site. But to be perfectly honest, it's kind of built into how we work and to what we do the clients themselves don't necessarily have a they have a stake in it maybe but it's not necessarily a part of it's not part of their mission perhaps right um, not every client really cares about these things um, it, we just kind of feel like it's it's our duty to kind of make a, a site that's as optimized and performance um, uh, I guess as, as quick as possible um, I guess I'd say the other thing that we have been on the lookout for is green hosting and I think maybe that was something we, you know, we were talking about a little bit earlier. And green hosting is another dimension to, um, you know, sustainable to a growing, creating a sustainable web and growing a sustainable web. Um, we're always on the lookout for green hosts. There aren't that many that are reliable and that actually care, um, and that also provide good support. So um, we have a couple that we've relied on over the past few years, but by no means have we hit the, the magic bullet in terms of finding a green host. And in some, to some extent, I keep thinking, well, there's a perfect opportunity for someone to open a green host here in one of the coldest environments on the planet. It could be very, you know, these server farms demand lots of refrigeration or, or cooling. So it would be perfect like, to open a, a server farm here in Winnipeg or Manitoba. Um, I'll put that out there if somebody is, is, is thinking about a new business opportunity. So people who are listening to this, Andrew, um, who um, they don't have a website of their own, but they're suddenly now aware of the fact that the digital world in which they live has an enormous carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. What can individuals do to, uh, to reduce their, their digital carbon footprint? Oh boy, that's a great question. There are a few things that you can probably do, and there and a lot of these are very commonsensical approaches. So, if you're using a computer and you're gone for the day, make sure to put it to sleep or unplug it or shut it down. Right? Those are the those are the basic things. You know, we we talk about just as as green consumers. It is. This is. I mean, this is a tough from a consumer perspective. It's a really tough nut to crack, and I don't think anybody's really cracked it yet. 
um, by visiting fewer websites, you're learning less, perhaps, or learning, or you know, gather, gaining less knowledge, right? So I wouldn't encourage anyone to use less materials or less consume less digital information. But what I would say is um, consider how you're um, considering how the other kinds of things that you're doing as a consumer, whether or not it's you know you're purchasing from a, a B corporation, a company that cares, or working with a vendor that may be. Um, you know, providing, uh, you know, whether it's green, green materials or they're printing, you know, with green, um, green products. It's very tough as a consumer to negotiate the, the digital territory right now. Um, we don't, people we don't are have, using, you know, endless numbers of apps to do this and that and the other. Yeah, absolutely. And some of them, I would imagine, are, uh, are energy efficient apps, although yeah. who, who, who amongst us thinks about whether or not this app is energy efficient and this app is energy inefficient. I mean, yeah. energy efficiency with an app? Well, what are you talking it's, about? It is really, really tough. I mean, for instance, I was just watching Netflix last night, uh, this show called Peaky Blinders, and it was quite quite a fun show. But then if you look at the, the statistics, Netflix is now about 30% of the Internet uh, in terms of downloads. 30% uh, of the Internet is now represented by Netflix. So if we put that all together and we think about, you know, well, if people would somehow come together and said, look, Netflix, you need to power your servers with renewable energy, or at least start committing yourselves to thinking about it, um, that would be a huge contribution. But watching less Netflix or, you know, consuming less Netflix, you know, we start to get into questions of deprivation and, you know, consumption, and it's much harder. It's a much harder conversation. But I think there does need to be a consumer movement around this stuff, and um, bigger minds than mine will probably be figuring this out over the next few years. I'll tell you the leader here is, is Greenpeace, um, as usual. Uh, they have a Click Clean report, and um, every year it's released, and they rate all these major companies like Netflix and Facebook and, and Google, and they basically give them a, a score, like an A to F grade, and say, here's... Here's how they're doing. Here's how they're performing. And it's completely available. You can sp spend a little um, energy downloading their PDF, and it's an amazing report. Andrew Boardman, thank you so much for joining me on the Green Blues Show. Thank you very much for having me. Andrew Boardman is a web designer in Winnipeg and the head of a certified bee company called Man Overboard. Man Overboard helps companies and nonprofits develop online strategies and websites with small carbon footprints. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Pass the word along. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We are both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time.